0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Cafecito con Estrellita. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hola mi gente, welcome back to Cafecito con Estrellita. I hope you're doing well this week. Alright mi gente, so you know what time it is. It is our interview episode for the week and I am so honored to have mi amiga, mi colega, mi femtor. Jennifer from Academic Latina. She is currently a PhD student in Southern California, and she also got her bachelor's degree from CSUN. And I'm just—I'm so fortunate. To have met Jennifer and just build the professional relationship and just overall friendship that we have at this point. And before I just let this episode speak for itself, because it's a long one, but believe me, she goes into detail about boundaries and PhD. She goes into details about how to apply to grants, like detail by detail, because that's what our muher did. But before we go into the episode, I just really want to also shout out the fact that our girl today, on, hold on, let me. Let me look at the date. Today on March 25th, 2021, our girl hit over 5K on Instagram, and I'm just so proud of her because she is, she is what our first-gen Latinx community needs in the higher education realm. All right, mi this. so we're going to go ahead and let this episode speak for itself.
1: Yay! Hi, everyone. So, I'm Jennifer. I'm the founder of Academic Latina on Instagram. I am, like Estrella said, I'm in a PhD program in SoCal right now. I'm in an education PhD program doing a human development and context emphasis with a, you could say, a Chicano-Latino minor. Um, I went to Cal State Northridge for undergrad. I got my bachelor's in child and adolescent development with a minor in psychology. Um, What else? I... I'm from Boyle Heights, I am the first in my family to go to college, so I have two siblings, I actually have an older brother and a younger brother, I'm the only daughter, and therefore get all of the you know Latina um, norms and rules and expectations from our parents, and I think that's what inspired my research, so my, my research I look at, I love interviewing Latinas, I love hearing about their trajectories, I love hearing about their experiences, their journeys, how they've navigated academia, how they've struggled, how we have similar experiences, how they're different, and I think it's because as a Latina myself, I know the hardships that we have to go through in in higher education. So it's very important for me to really value and um, you know put importance to those experiences and validate their experiences. And so that's what I do. That's why I do what I do, and my ultimate goal is to become a professor at a teaching institution. So I'm very passionate about teaching. I could have sworn in high school, if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told you a kindergarten teacher because that's what I wanted to do. I thought I loved kids. And then in undergrad, let me tell you, I worked at the child center for like the students and their professors took their children here. And I worked there and it was like a preschool slash kindergarten, right? And I did not like it. And it wasn't that the kids were horrible. The kids are so fun. But that was the problem. <laughs> they were too fun. It was too much sleeping, too much eating, and too much playing for me. I just wanted to teach them something, you know, so they have on. So I began to TA undergrads, and I loved it. I loved being a mentor. I loved being an advisor for them. I loved talking to them about my own experiences as a student, my own goals, um, pursuing, you know, higher education and then I decided that I want to be a professor and since then I've been you know with that goal in mind and it's really what pushes me to continue to pursue my PhD and why I want to be at a teaching institution as opposed to a research institution is because that isn't for me and while I love research that has to do with interviews and ethnographies I could do that at a community college or I could do that at a Cal State and I feel like Cal States and community colleges, um, they, how do I say it? They value and they put more love to the mentorship and the relationships with their students and the nurturing of their students. And that's what I want to do. That's what I felt was the most important for me
0: in undergrad. And I want to, you know, pass it along to them. No, of course. And I mean I just, I just have to say it again. I am really honored to have Jennifer here because trust me, like as many of us continue to go through higher ed, we have, we not have to, but we really, really do have to battle through imposter syndrome, have to wonder, am I doing enough? Am I doing too little? And with Jennifer being at the institution she's at, with all the experiences she has in her PhD program as of now, I just know she's going to give us so much reassurance that you can do it, and there's no such thing as the perfect student. So, Jennifer, I really want to start off and just ask you straight out. How was it for you studying for the GRE, and what can you share with our gente listening?
1: Yeah, so studying for the GRE was a very... Oh, that I had to go to grad school to be a professor. <laughs> that was the first, the first hit. Um, I was super close to my professors in undergrad, and in the fall, my last fall semester there... My department chair, he came up to me and he asked me, hey JC, so what grad programs are you applying to? And I was like, why do I have to apply to grad programs, sir? And he said, well, if you wanna be a professor, you have to pursue a higher degree than a bachelor's. And so I was like, okay, so like a master's? And he was like, nope, a PhD. (laughs) I kept fighting this guy on going to a master's program. I also wanted to go to the master's at my Cal State. And he was like, no, you have to go to a PhD program. So I was like, okay, it wasn't that you can't be a professor with, without a PhD. It was that he knew I was capable of completing a PhD and he wanted me to just push myself for it. So I really appreciate that. And I'm super thankful for him to this day. Um, and so with that, then I looked into grad schools and I saw that they required GREs, GRE scores. Um, and so this was October-ish and the in the applications were due in December, so I had basically a month to study. Don't do that. Study a little bit longer than that. I studying, and I got my results back, like, end of November, and they were not what I was hoping for. They were pretty low scores. So the GRE has the math, the verbal, and the written, um, the verbal being, like, grammar, English, of course, um, and vocabulary. So just a lot of terms that I was nowhere aware that they even existed Um, so it was very, it was, it was very much a bummer, right? To get those low scores. And I felt like I wasn't going to be as competitive as I would have hoped to be for these applications. So not to mention that when I was applying to grad school, I was advised to apply to grad programs to work with advisors who had similar research interests as mine. At the time I looked at social media and adolescent identity and adolescent um, self-esteem, depression and, and anxieties and a lot of professors you'll find are like older and they don't know about social media. So they don't do research on social media. And so I only found two and, um, it was very hard to, you know, because the the research was similar, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I really wanted. So anyways, I applied to the program and I got waitlisted and they told me that the reason why I was waitlisted was because my GRE scores were so low. Um, and again, another bummer. So when I got this email, that was like early spring. Um, I kind of made up my mind that I wasn't gonna get in because it was UCLA and I'm like UCLA is like a dream school, right? So I was like, yeah, I'm not gonna get in. My year scores are too low. So it was fine. I made up my mind that I was going to then take a gap year. So I took a gap year and during this gap year I decided to go to um, community college and it was a great experience. I loved my time there. And while I was there, I decided to study more for a second jury. And that's when I downloaded, um, you know, apps like Magouche and I was getting the books that I needed to study for the jury. The scores were a little bit better this time around, but they still weren't perfect. Luckily, um, as I was telling Nisra earlier, so Magouche has a, Essay. I mean, they have all the sections that you have to study, like prep and, um, you know, like fake exams or whatever. But the essay prompt that I studied on Magush was the essay prompt that I received the day of my GRE. And when I tell you that I was shocked seeing this prompt at my testing site, I was shocked. But I just went with it. I didn't make any comments. I just went with it. I wrote down what I had practiced, what Magush told me that GRE wanted um, to hear. And I got a five out of five. And Like I said, I stood it poorly on my math and my verbal. But when I spoke to my current advisor when I was applying to the program, I let her know straight up. I told her, my GRE scores are not the best. And she asked about my written. And she said, well, how did you do on your written, on your essay? And I said, well, I got a five out of five. And she said, perfect. That's all I need. She said, I need a writer. And if you're a good writer, then I need you. And so she accepted me into the program and didn't care about my math or my verbal scores. That was great. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it went. I, I think looking back, I wish I would have one known that I had to take this GRE and two, um, you know, study a little bit longer, maybe gather a group of friends and study with them with flashcards. Um, I think that would have been a little bit of a better preparation for me.
0: No, of course. And I just, I'm very curious. and I forgot to ask you backstage. So you, like you just said, you went to your advisor and you let her know, Hey, well, your current advisor, my scores aren't the best here and here on the GRE. Did you email this to her or was it during an interview that you had with program or how did that happen?
1: Oh yeah. So it was over the phone. Um, When I, I think when I was looking at this program, there was two. Prof- there was one professor that I thought would be my advisor, and I emailed him and I told him, "Hey, I'm interested in the program. Um, are you able to tell me a little bit more about your research projects? If I fit in, you know, if we're if we're a match or not, basically." And he said, "Sure, um, let's set up a a meeting." Right? He said, "Let's set up a meeting, and you can come to campus and meet some of my students and see if we, you know." basically vibe. Um, so I went to campus. I met with him and he, he listened to my research interests. He listened to my background, my research background. And he said, you know what? I think you'd be a better match with my advisor. Um, and he said, but she is on sabbatical now. So you can't physically meet her, but let me give you her email. And you guys probably set up a phone call. And that's how it happened. So I went home, I emailed her a couple of days later, she replied. We set up a phone call and she said, you know, I spoke to professor, and he told me, you know, X Y Z about you. Um, tell me a little bit more about yourself. And so we were talking. It was like about maybe a thirty-minute, forty-five-minute conversation, and we were talking. And that's when she asked. She asked about the GRE. She said, um, "How are your GRE scores?" And I was like, "Oh no." <laughs> so that that's when I told her. And um, but she was very understanding, and you know, I'm in. So.
0: No, of course. Now, okay, who, I don't know how it is to say this, but you know that I mean super well. And I feel like so many people are thinking this. Who told you to email and ask? Like, how, how did you come up with that conclusion? To email them and ask them
1: to talk to them? Oh, yeah. my department chair.
0: But yes, like, like, was it your advisor from CSUN or your community mm-hmm. college that gave you the confidence you needed to be like, hey, just, just email and ask. It doesn't hurt.
1: Yeah, it was definitely my department chair. So the guy that pushed me to go to PhD programs, it was him. He's the one that um, told me to email them and, you know, just connect with them and get to know them before applying, simply because applying is an expensive process. And he didn't want me to spend my money on an application to a school that I would end up not being a good match with. Does that make sense? So he kind of, um, you know, encouraged me to reach out to them, to email them. And it was very helpful. He wasn't the only person I emailed. That. I emailed a bunch of people, um, you know, that I felt aligned as closely as possible to my own research. Um, and that's kind of how I went, you know, crossing them off my list and saying, okay, this is not a good match. This is not a good match. This one is probably a good match. This one, okay, it's a little bit better of a match. And I just kind of played that game of seeing <laughs> who I would be. Um, who would be uh, my, you know, best advisor as a, as a PhD student.
0: And during your gap year and while you were at the community college, I'm assuming you were like brainstorming and thinking about your potential research that while you're doing now. And do you think that gap year also helped you have more of a clear understanding on your research that you want to do?
1: So here's the thing, my research interests, Now that I mentioned about interviewing Adina's, it didn't spark until I wanted to drop out of grad school like two years ago. So that's when that happened. So I didn't know that this is what I wanted to do. I didn't know this would be my passion. And I can get into that, of course, um, later. But when I was in community college, my main goal was because I was terrified of statistics and because I did so bad on the math part in the GRE my goal was to take statistics courses that would better prepare me for grad school statistics, if that makes sense. So I took, um, like intro to stats all over again, even though I had taken it in undergrad, in undergrad, it was, um, statistics in the mathematics department. And in community college, it was statistics in psychology. Yeah. In psychology. So I took, um, it's not that they're different. It's still math. It's just the scenarios that you get of statistics were different. So um, and I love psychology. So it was easier for me to grasp what was going on in the numbers, you um, know through that department. So I took that and I took like a research method that told me more about different, you know, types of research. So it was basically prepping me for stats in grad school. Um, and the professors that I had, I had, uh, I think I took like three classes Something like that, but the professors that I had were actually in PhD programs themselves, which I thought was like so cool. Um, and it was totally different experiences. One of them, he was a uh, you know a man, and the other one was a woman. Um, so it was completely different experiences, completely different advice that I would hear from them. Um, so it was very very cool to be among them, and it was even cooler to be at a community college because I had never been in a community college and being there, I really got the experience of that mentorship that I feel community college really, really values. And I loved it. I loved my experience in the community college. And I loved being surrounded by peers who, um, you know, they were, they weren't straight out of high school, not all of them, but some of them were just figuring out what they wanted to do. And the classes that I would take with them, they were like, I wouldn't say doing them for fun, but they were just doing them to figure out what they wanted. I I was fascinated by that. Like I, I love that. I knew, you know, right off the bat what I want to do with my life and my career choices. But I have a best friend who, um, who went to community college and she, to this day, doesn't know what she wants to do, but she's tried so many things and taken so many classes. And I'm like, that is so cool. Like just to get it all, you know, and learn so much of so many different things and,
0: grasping everything. Um, was really cool for me to be in that environment. No, of course. And now, Miss PhD student herself, first-gen, Latina, all of that good stuff. Let's, let's talk about more juicy detail. Ha- funding, funding. What can you share with our gente about funding? I know on your IG, um, Academic Latina, you do share some tips, or not even tips, as well as, you know, conversations about funding so can you share something some things about that
1: yes so when it comes to funding I didn't know much about it as an undergraduate student when I got my offer from my current program they just told me that it would be five years fully funded and to me that just said free and I said I'm taking it um because in undergrad I got financial aid and I didn't have to you know pet a pocket for my for my tuition or anything like that um and I wanted to keep that going. And I was afraid. And again, another reason why my professor didn't push me for masters was because of that exactly, because he, you know, told me that masters, you would need to take out a loan. Um, and I didn't want that. So when I heard that the PhDs were funded, um, most of them, at least I was like encouraged more to apply to them. Anyways, I got my offer from my program and they said it was five years fully funded, um, and basically what that meant was that I would be a TA or a graduate research assistant or a reader, which is kind of like a TA, but you don't teach, you just grade stuff. Um, and that would be like the quote unquote work that I would be doing to get paid. Um, but my tuition would be covered by them. And what I would get paid for would be for me to pay my rent, if that makes sense. So, um, basically they pay me for me to pay my rent, which I guess every job does that. Right. Um, so that's how that works. Now, one thing that I did find out after accepting the offer was that my housing, my grad housing was only for four years. And let me tell you, I was a little upset when I found out only because it wasn't explicit. It wasn't in big font, you know, in the contract saying like you get five years fully funded for the program and four years of housing which is fine. Um, you know, luckily I have a partner and I have family who would support me if I have to leave, you know, out of grad housing. Um, but I wish I would have been a little bit more open about that because while for me, it's okay. My peers, you know, don't all share similar experiences. And some of them are like moved here from, I don't know, New York, from Miami, from Texas, and they don't really have a secure space that they can move back into, you know what I'm saying? So. That's something that I wish they would have been more open about. But um yeah, so that's that's the way that program funds me. And then in addition to that, they do they did offer me fellowships when I applied. They kind of bribed me with fellowships. So I had like a diversity fellowship, which was like five thousand dollars for the summer. And I was in an eight week research program. So I was getting the grad school experience before starting my grad program and I was getting paid for it. So Of course, I took that offer or that fellowship. And then um, there's another one that they gave me. I forgot what it's called, but it's another one that's $5,000 for like four summers. So summer funding is really hard in grad school because programs don't guarantee that. So a lot of students TA or they get like outside of school jobs. Um, And so having the summer fellowship really also motivated me to accept their offer because I felt like, okay, I have my summers covered. Financially, um, without having to look for another job. So there was that. And then um, last year, I decided to apply, or we were encouraged in our program to apply to fellowships. And there's these two really big popular ones that everybody tries to apply to, which are the NSF, the National Science Foundation, and the Ford Foundation. And um, I applied to both. they are different funding packages. The NSF is quote-unquote more prestigious and they offer more money and then the Ford offers less money but because of that it's more competitive so they get more applicants and they can't offer you as much you know Um, I mean they can't offer it to a lot of people because a lot of people apply to it so it's harder to get than um, the NSF which was a little confusing for me at first I was like how is a more expensive one easier to get but it's just because there's less people applying to it of course, you have to be a comp- competitive applicant, but um, yeah, so I applied to both. I didn't get Ford, again, because so many other people applied to and My application might not have been the best. Um, so I didn't get Ford, but I did get NSF and that funded me for three years. So I, I'm on my first year now of being funded through it. Um, so I have three years of funding there. And yeah, that's kind of how funding goes in, in grad school. It's really... And it, it, it really, I'm serving on the admissions committee now and I'm learning that it's very different for international students. They get different funding packages and different funding requirements, I guess, that they have to meet in order to be funded. Like courses, they have to meet certain milestones, you know, at different levels and different timelines than us California resident students. Um, so it really depends, you know, not just, It doesn't vary just by program, but it also varies on your own personal background.
0: No, of course. And for fellowships, okay. So does it take a long time to fill it out? Because I don't like, is it something like, I don't want to say like quick and easy, but is it similar to FAFSA where it's like just a long process or can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So fellowships, it's an application like FAFSA. So
1: you do have to do the application process, but you also have to write statements So, for example, NSF had three statements that you had to do. Um, I think each were two to three pages long, single-spaced, and Ford had two statements. Ideally, it's your personal statement, um, like the one we submitted for for undergrad, and then it's your research experience, the experience that you have in research. And the third one is you have to propose a research project, so you have to basically prove to them that you are capable of conducting your own research. And this is how they, um, I think this is the most important one because you're funding your research. So they want to know that you're, you know, capable and you are, um, you know, experienced enough to be able to do what they're funding you for, if that makes sense. So that's where it, it gets a little bit tricky because even though, Three pages single space might sound like a lot when it comes to research proposals it's not it's not a lot of space to really tell them how much you know um and then there's the you know the other end of this double-edged sword of you know if you don't have research experience then how are you supposed to be a competitive applicant which is really important too um and what i feel was my technique during this is that I had research experience in undergrad, but it was not in the research topics that I was proposing. So while I was proposing that I would interview Latinas and I care about Latinas in higher education, my research background was on social media. My research background was on like mothers of children with autism. Um, because these were research projects that I somehow got involved in in undergrad, even if it was just volunteering to be there like I said, for the mothers of of children with autism, I literally just, a professor reached out to me because I worked at the child development department office and she walked in one day and she was like, hey, do you know Spanish? And I said, yeah, of course I know Spanish. And she said, cool, I'm I'm doing this focus group for women, um, Latina moms. And um, I was wondering if you could help me watch their kids while I interview them. And I was like, of course. So then I became a volunteer for this research and being at this place and seeing, you know, taking care of the kids while the moms were interviewed, I got to see like the behind the scenes of of what it was like to interview. And occasionally they would ask me, like, Jennifer, can you translate? Can you tell her this? Can you tell her that? Or the moms would tell me, can you translate and tell her this? Um, so that's kind of how I got embedded in research. And believe it or not, those experiences count. <laughs> so that's what I talked about in my research proposals, in my research experience statements and I think that a lot of people don't know that these little things matter, um, but they do and they're very important and, um, even if your research in my research experience in undergrad was like nowhere near, you know, what I do now, it it counted and it made me a researcher without me knowing it.
0: (laughs) No, of course. And I love that you brought that up because same here. I remember what, like Jennifer had mentioned, you can get so many experiences from community college. I also did my first poster presentation at the APA and WPA conferences while I was a community college student. But my research, my research was in psychology, but focused on like dissociative states. I, I'm doing a master's and credential in the Spanish education area. So I have nothing in regards to that connection now, but. you know, it's just, it's good to get research experience or even just like put your foot in it during your undergrad, because you don't know if you're going to find yourself in a master's program right after or go straight to a PhD like Jennifer. So that's something to really keep in mind. And Jennifer, I love how you're going so detailed with all of this, because trust me, I'm learning myself too. Now I want to go ahead and transition on something that you've inspired me to start doing without you actually telling me, but you're very good at leaving school at school and you're a PhD student. And to me, that's so fascinating because at least like, well, we know social media, we see what we see. But when I, I've seen um, other students, it looks like they're always working. So sometimes that like brings me down, like, oh, I should, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I should be like, I should always be working, working in school, but it's good to have that healthy distance. And I feel like sometimes we forget about it if we're constantly just like seeing like content of people always working in their academics. So yeah, Jennifer, go ahead and share whatever you would like about that, that secret of yours.
1: <laughs> secret, the secret is out. Um, yeah. So I do, um, I don't work on the weekends and I think that it's, it's something that was mentioned behind the scenes before um, we hit record, um, that it was just something that I got accustomed to an undergrad because In undergrad, my first two years, I commuted there. And um living at home, living in a Latinx household, y'all, we know we cannot get work done. It's so hard to get work done. Especially, especially being the girl and being told they have to wash the dishes and you have to clean and you have to do this and you have to do that. That was my life. And so my mom doesn't care that I'm 25. She'll still make a bunch of dishes. Um, so I still do household chores when I go visit them. Um Anyways, so when I was living at home and going to undergrad, um, you know, I couldn't get work done. And so I decided to move to my undergrad city. And once I did that, I would still visit on the weekends. And once again, I couldn't do work on the weekends. And so I got accustomed to that. I got accustomed to working my butt off during the week and then coming home on the weekends and not being able to do anything so i just had that mindset of i'll do it all sunday night and then sunday nights would extend until monday mornings (laughs) which was fine for me because i'm a night owl and i focus more at night so it wasn't like the biggest deal for me to work late at night but um i'm not gonna say it was easy either to stay up you know so many hours doing everything i'm not gonna say it was the best work either um but that's just what worked for me. And coming to grad school, that was the same mentality that I kept. And I would be lying if I, you know, at some points did compare myself to to my peers. And I felt, um, even my closest friends, my closest Latina friends, they work on the weekends. And they work hard, let me tell you. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, when I first met them, I did compare myself. And I was like, damn, maybe I should start not going home on the weekends or maybe I should just you know do my readings on the weekends but I couldn't because I kept going home on the weekends and because I kept enjoying my weekends and to me it was just important to do that because grad school and the city that I live in now is very different from LA and from what I grew up you know and it keeps me sane I guess to go back home and to be with my family and to you know um visit my tia's and go shopping with my mom and go to the park with my dad and it's just it, it's what makes me happy and I feel like I need it and so yeah I've, I've continued to not work on the weekends and was it you know looked down upon sure I don't care <laughs> my peers you know they they would make comments of like mostly shocked like how do you not work on the weekends one time I remember I was going home um and I was walking to my apartment and I ran into an older um, guy from my program. And he, you know, asked me like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Like, what are your plans? And I said, oh, I'm going home um, to visit my parents, you know, just hanging out. And he was like, oh, me too. Um, No, he said, I'm also going to LA, but he was going to like six lives or something. He's like, but you know, like just for the day and I'm coming back and I have so much work to do. And I was like, um, cool. And he was like, what are you going to work on this weekend? And I was like, nothing. I just said, I'm going home (laughs) to have fun with my family. And he was like, it was so awkward because you're just standing there like in the parking lot. And he was just like, he had this weird, like facial expression. And it was like the most awkward, like 10 seconds of my life. I kid you not. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) So anyways, but he was so confused that I wasn't going to work on the weekend. And, um, even my advisor, like I, I, I mentioned to you, Estreita, um, you know, my advisor working with other students who do work on the weekends, she was accustomed to saying things. If we would meet on Wednesdays, she was accustomed to say things like, okay, so, you know, work on this for the weekend and let's meet on Monday. And I'd be like, I don't work on the weekends. And then she would say things like, this is grad school. Like there's a lot of work that you have to do. So you might have to give up your weekends. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. Like I don't work on the weekends. I'll get it done Monday and Tuesday and we can meet next Wednesday or next Friday. And sure it extended the deadlines a little bit more, but she got used to it. And now she doesn't email me on weekends because she knows I'm not going to look at my email. Um, that's another thing too. I completely took off the email from my phone, which was very like scary to do because some of these emails are like reply as soon as possible. You know what I'm saying? So I was afraid, but I just, it was so annoying to continuously get emails and school oh my god school sends uh, so many emails so many unnecessary emails and it was just like overwhelming me and so I took the app off of my phone and whenever I had my laptop then I saw the emails and of course if I wasn't taking my laptop to LA on the weekends that I wasn't aware of my emails um and I feel like even the the graduate program like coordinator she got used to it too because she would email me you know important things and i'd hit her up on monday and i'd say like i'm so sorry like i wasn't on my email this weekend so when she got used to it too and she got caught up on it and she would email me like a friday you know before 4 p.m hit because she knew i would leave um and now i have the email app but i don't have the notifications on um just because like you know i have academic latina now too and i care about the email but i don't have the notifications on so I think that's still distancing myself enough from from my work, quote-unquote work. Um, But yeah, I think think it's important, like I said, to just keep me sane, to not do work all the time. And I still, I'm super busy on Sundays and I'm still super busy, you know, Mondays. Um, But that's fine. I feel like it's worth it to, like, work hard on Monday through Friday and then just don't think about it Saturday and Sunday.
0: No, of course, and when you were putting these boundaries, did you even know they were boundaries, or was it just something you were like, "No, I just don't work on the weekends
1: No, I didn't know they were boundaries. I was just like hard headed and I didn't want to work on the weekends um and I'm not gonna lie. It felt like cool. It felt like a cool girl to you know not do work on the weekends and I feel like ugh, I'm so different from everybody in my grad program and one, like being from LA and being from Heights already, like I feel like the students got this like, not bias, but like this stigma of like, oh, she grew up in the hood, you know, and me then saying like, I don't work on the weekends. It was like this rebellious like image. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I don't work on the weekends. I'm not going to work on the weekends. You're not going to force me to work on the weekends. So that's kind of why I just stuck to it.
0: No, of course. And I love that you have that mentality while the school is paying you to be there. <laughs> right? It's like the school le gusta la mala vida, not Jennifer. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: No, I love that. And trust me, this was something that I needed to hear. And I'm pretty sure other people are just appreciating how you're going into detail with all this. Now, the next thing I wanted to ask, which we also talked about before I hit record, was the fact that, okay, again, you're a PhD student, I believe you're a third year, correct? Yes. That's right. Okay. All right. Perfect. So hi, I did do my research right on Jennifer, but um, <laughs> I was going to ask, so you've been in the program for a while and you're about to, I'm assuming, start like your dissertation work and all that stuff. But with your PhD classes itself, did you have any that like legit, you were like, oh, this is just like undergrad. And can you kind of go in detail like that? Because I'm going to be honest when like, someone hears, especially a first-gen student, is like, PhD, I'm a PhD student, like, everything just sounds more intens- intensified, sounds more like, oh my gosh, I have to be this perfect cookie-cutter student to fit in to the PhD programs because the classes are nothing like undergrad. But I would think to myself, like, but these professors are human beings that teach both undergrad and classes so that's where I'm like I just want to know and I'm pretty sure others might want to know too like what's the real deal with PhD classes are they similar to the undergrad style or are they just like kind of super scary
1: <laughs> they were scary before I took them um, I feel like so like I said my program I'm doing the human development and context emphasis so this is basically human development theories that I learned as a child development major so were the classes related for me? Yes, because the topics were similar. We we're talking about the same theorists. we were talking about the same, you know, developmental theories. And um, so it was very much stuff that I already knew from undergrad, especially being a psych minor. Um, in terms of the structure, I feel like they're a little different, but not like a hundred percent opposite. end, you know, so what I, what I was, um, you know, what I have learned is that the classes in grad school, at least in my program, give you a week that you're assigned to present. Now I love public speaking. I I really do. (laughs) I, 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 like, you know, presenting, especially designing PowerPoints. I love it. Um, so I don't care for that. Right. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't scare me, but What did scare me was that, you know, the first week we would meet and the professor would be like, you know, welcome to whatever class. And they would say, um, each of you has to choose Sometimes it was two weeks, but mostly one week, um, you know, one or two weeks to present those readings for that week. Now, you know, in undergrad, when we had reading assigned, it was like one article, a 15 page article, you know, um. The intro, the methods, the findings, and you're good. But in grad school, <laughs> my sociology classes were like, okay, you have like to read you have to read four books this week. <laughs> so it wasn't we weren't splitting like three pages among each other. We we're splitting like whole books. Um, so And then these are classes that like I've never taken before and I am not you know 100% familiar with what they're talking about. So I would always make sure that I paired up with my friends. <laughs> so I would pair up with my friends and, you know, with my Latina friends and be like, mm, if we are going to, you know, not know what we're doing, we're not going to know what we're doing together. So we would always team up and we would pick the weeks, you know, that worked for both of us. And um, one of my closest friends in grad school, Maritza, we, we did that a lot. We took a lot of classes together and we would always be, you know, the one that would present together and it just worked out because we were both procrastinators. So we were like, you know, the day before finishing with the PowerPoint. Um, and we would really help each other. She's also from a human development background. So we would help each other understand the readings. And another thing was, um, communicating with the faculty. So I got that in undergrad. I was very familiar with all the faculty because I worked in the department office and, um, that was very like valuable to me and i felt like that got me to where i am today those relationships those networkings those network relationships and so in grad school i made a really good um like i i'm very good at communicating with the faculty and i've served on a lot of committees to know that they are not better than us and that we are the same and, you know, yes, there's like power dynamics that still exist because politics is grad school, but they're regular people and I love talking to them. So, you know, a lot of times I felt confused or scared or afraid for these weekly presentations, but I would just talk to the professor and I'd say, you know what? I don't understand what this person is talking about, through like three chapters of this book. And they'd help me understand. And it was like, like they didn't care that I didn't get it. You know, they they were, you know, they would say things like absolutely like he doesn't make any sense like you're right you're right to not understand it like we all don't understand it and they would make me feel very smart (laughs) among not understanding so um that too made a big difference for me communicating with the faculty and you know like I said I think one of the biggest differences is for sure um the workload like the reading load um I think it's it's a lot but one thing that I, I, a piece of advice that I received, you know, early on was to always treat these classes to your benefit. So all the classes that I take, of course, not the required ones, I have to do the required ones, but the classes that I take that are not required, why am I taking them? How do they relate to my research? What am I getting out of them that will benefit me? So every time I would do these readings, say I had to read a book about, um, you know, Latina teachers, then I would read it with that mindset of like thinking about, as a Latina, like, what experiences did they go through, you know, because my research looked at Latinas in in higher ed, so I would take that approach to everything. If I was taking an immigration class, I would think about, how does, like, your generation level influence, you know, being a first generation, how does being a first gen, a 1.5 gen, a two, second generation, influence your graduate experiences? So, while it was, you know, sometimes hard, especially in my immigration classes, to understand, like, I really understand but like keep track of all the dates of all these laws and stuff that has happened throughout the years in history it was for me it was more important to forget about the dates and just thinking about like how that mattered for me personally
0: no of course and I First and foremost, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And it's just, again, I just love how real you're being with this entire conversation because I'm learning a lot from you too. And also don't feel bad that you split the readings with your colegas. I do that too, especially right now with Zoom. It's like, it's a whole other ball game. Oh, and especially because, okay, my first semester of program, I had to take a couple special education classes they were really hard. There is so much terminology. Like, this is why I cannot specialize in special education. I don't feel qualified enough for it. So, so shout out to those that do. But if I would have not survived my first semester of program where I'm at now if it wasn't for, like, my two other colegas. And then, like, well, we wouldn't just, like, you know, talk about the readings. We'd talk about, like, this stinks so much. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> now, I did want to ask, okay, so we're loving jennifer's style we're loving her vibe you want to know who else we really love we love bad bunny can you talk a little bit about (laughs) something you kind of (laughs) sell
1: yeah so rumor on the street is that i saw bad bunny stickers um so i i feel like you know, I feel, I hope your listeners are Bad Bunny fans because they're not going to get it unless they're Bad Bunny fans, but Bad Bunny is just so, you know, Benito, he is like so different from everybody else in the industry, I feel personally. Um, and I think that he's so relatable and he's so genuine and he's so caring and he's a Pisces, so he's one of mine. Um, but, you know, his songs about, what was it? Um, I'm not going to start singing, but like, you know, lyrics that say like, temprano, mañana hay que estudiar, um, you know, hearing them and hearing it in a reggaeton song, it just like blew my mind. And it it was nice to see, you know, that representation of being in Estudiosa and how he valued that, you know what I'm saying? And, and even now with his new song saying like, para even more, like I told you straight he probably met medical doctors, but, I consider myself a Lakota too, so you know. Um, and it's just, I feel like like seeing the representation, or seeing myself in his songs, and seeing myself in something that's not academia. You know, like it just it was it's very important for me, and it's very special. And I appreciate him for doing that. I would tell him thank you. If you're listening to this, by Bunny, thank you. No, <laughs> <But, awesome>. <laughs> Yeah. So um that's where that's where that inspiration
0: came from. I actually have her sticker on my little twenty-nine dollar Amazon desk and it, it it makes me feel really good. It's Estudiosa Puesta pa Ser Doctora. And there's your little your little tag, Academic Latina. You sell them for like three fifty, I think, with free shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look shipping. at me just hyping her up. I was telling Jennifer <laughs> behind the scenes that I know probably some of you already know, but I've shouted her, her out in a couple episodes in the past where I put her um, her IG handle on the show notes. And I'm like, Jennifer probably doesn't even know because she has like so much going on and then I have so much going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know until you told me right now. And I was like, what? But that's awesome. Yes, uh, they are. Free shipping.
0: No, of course. And then So, and this is why I just love this so much. It's just like, it's so important to obviously do your work that you're doing in higher education because only about 5% of Latinx individuals hold doctoral degrees. But you just like, terca, like you're like, I need my identity. I need, so in your personal opinion, how important do you think it is for every student, whether in their, in their master's, their PhD program to just like hold on to whatever keeps them like human if that makes sense
1: I think it's really important um you know like I was I think I said it when you hit record I mean after you hit record but I personally feel like I am very different to my peers and I think that I express that in my platform maybe not as much as I should it's giving to be good idea <laughs> yeah I think that um I don't really fit among my peers. So one, I don't dress like them. (laughs) Two, I don't talk like them. Three, I don't listen to the same music that they do. Four, I do not do the same kind of research that they do. Um, So I'm like the little black sheep, you know, but I love being a little black sheep. I also love the color black, so I don't (laughs) mind. While they're paying you.
0: While they are paying (laughs) you. Remember that.
1: Yeah, so um, I think that, you know, dressing the way I like to dress hearing the kind of music I like to hear, um, bumping it in campus, you know, it it keeps me true to myself. And it's so funny because my, my, <laughs> my partner, he makes fun of me a lot, but he says that I have a, he says I have this white voice that I put on when I talk in my meetings. And I'm like, no, I don't. And he's like, you do like, you, you try so hard to, to speak so professionally. And I'm like, do i like i don't i don't hear it but um i mean obviously i'm not gonna like i don't know like it happens naturally you know because i you know enter this environment where we're on zoom obviously and they're all talking and i might not look like them and i might not you know how do i say it like i'm i'm different but like i'm still within them you know what I'm saying like I I still somehow fit into the puzzle that they're missing but um I feel like I'm very different and I like that and um I really do like that and girl like the number of times that effort obviously when we were in person right I would go to class like in sweats and like my slides and like socks and slides and a hoodie, like my Cal State Northridge hoodie, to say less. Like, who cares about this new university? <laughs> I was, like, repping my, you know, undergrad. And um, it was so funny because my peers, like, my cohort peers, they would like, not my Latina cohort peers, but, like, the international students or, you know, the white students, they would look at me a little weird, like, because they were so dressed, like, really nice. Um, and it was so funny because there's this guy in my cohort, and he's a white guy, Um and he would go to class like in basketball shorts and slides and nobody looked at him like that. And one time he he made a comment, like he was like, Oh, I like your pants. I was going like my boyfriend's a beta pants or something. And I was like, thanks. Like I like your pants. Um, and it was so funny. Like my friends like burst out laughing. Cause they were like, of course you guys like each other. Like you guys look the same. You just look right. He's a guy, you know, we're basically wearing the same thing. Um, and you know, I just, I really like, for me, it's like comfort over everything. So, I wasn't going to go to class not being comfortable or being cold because I'm wearing like a little cardigan or a little, you know, sweater. Um, So, yeah, I think that and also just not doing work on the weekends. Like it's just being different is good, you guys. And being different, I think, has made me has kept me happy and has kept me here. Because if I were to just mold myself to what the expectations or the Google definition of a grad student is, I don't think I would be happy. And I don't think I would stay
0: here no of course and this is what's going to make you an amazing professor like i now this is making me wish that i could sit in one of your classes i hope i can like visit i know we talked about it before with our other colegas like virtual colegas but you can sit in other university classes and learn. So I hope I can get invited to like sit in one of your lectures <laughs> and just like fangirl. By the way, we had that. I have this tendency that whenever like I have guests that you can tell I'm just fangirling over, my voice gets very high pitch. I've learned <laughs> to control that as the episodes progress because trust me, like Jennifer gets the DMs all the time from me. I'll be like, oh my gosh, I I love you, like, but I'm I'm saying it very calm right now because I don't want to like. Disrupt
1: the mood. <laughs> no, no, no! I love it. I love it, and I found out we'll too, Trita, You're badass. <laughs> Shut
0: up. <laughs> no, definitely now, Jennifer. It looks like we're coming to an end of our episode, and you've given so many amazing consejitos, but also like juicy cheesement like our gente like reach out to professors before even applying to grad school so you don't waste your money on expensive applications if like their research won't align with you you had also mentioned um you know study well for the gre but it's like it's not going to be the end of the world if you don't get the perfect score like you'll get into grad school eventually you know and then leaving work at work, school, at school, however you would like to, like, interpret that for yourself. But with all that being said, is there anything else you want to, like, share with us, Jennifer? It can be something super random. It doesn't even have to be academic-related. Maybe just the fact about Bad Bunny.
1: <laughs> um, Is there anything else I want to share? Your PhD um, dog? Oh, yeah, I have a PhD dog. He's in his crate right now. Fucking normal thing, <laughs> But, um. Yeah, so that's another thing that's very interesting. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, at least for me, because in grad school, they also somehow expect you to just do grad school. Like, especially being Latina, these conversations of like, you know, at least for me. Um, well, my, my experience is different too, but most Latinas, as I've heard in my interviews, are expected, you know, at a certain age to get married and have kids. And there's these norms that we should somehow meet. Um, and for me, I'm, I'm like blessed with my mom who completely like does not, she's not for that. She's like, no te casas, no he was like tu vida. And so, um, you know, I'm all for that. And, but I, I feel like I, I still get curious about like my peers who do have kids and I made comments to, to you know, my advisor of, um, or, or, you know, like having children and getting married and all of that. And I feel like in grad school, they always care about research so much and like you succeeding in their program and obviously making them look good that they will like push you to not do that. Like they'll be like, um, that's going to take a lot of your time or, you know, it's going to be like very hard for you to balance that like not even knowing what I'm capable of balancing, but, um, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's like, yeah, it's really interesting to see, to see students who are my peers and who have children and, you know, are expected to work at the same level as students who don't have children. And I feel like that's something so important and it's something that por más que queremos, like, they don't, they don't like... Do, they don't address it in grad school. Like they don't differentiate between those two types of students. And for me, even though I'm not a mom, you know, I'm, I'm a dog mom, but I'm not a human child mom. Um, but to me, it's so important because I see how my peers struggle through that. And I, you know, in grad school, one thing that I learned too, is that, um, my peers are like from all different ages. I have peers or my cohort who entered, you know, the same year as me, that's what a cohort means, who entered the same year as me, and they're, like, grandparents, to kids my age, you know, and they have, like, their whole careers, like, they were principals for, like, ages, and now they decided to get a PhD, and so we have very different backgrounds, and, you know, some who are older than me, and started having children, or some that are my age, and got married, and, you know, bought a house, and lived with their partners, and We all have different backgrounds and I feel like it's so important to recognize that and and recognize that we shouldn't have the same workload expectations, but... You know, that's academia. And we're still here.
0: <laughs> so oh, of course. And we're literally paving the way and like breaking barriers, literally. Now, one more thing before we do log off that I want to share with you, Jennifer, and we can continue this conversation after the interview, but I also want me to know too. So recently, I've been asked a lot, Estrella, how do you keep up the podcast the way that you do and the content for it when you are a night student cuz girl on friday nights i'm in class 7 to 10 p.m. like i have class other days of the week but i feel like when i talk about my friday night classes it just gives that oomph like i i i go to school late and i also have like you know my big girl job during the day and it's because i developed this mentality where this podcast is literally my baby like like literally like i just i have the mentality where it's just like okay as if i were a mom going to grad school no matter how busy the mom is no matter how like how much work she has to do academic wise and maybe even like work she is not going to do any of that stuff until her baby is fed and for me feeding the podcast is doing the daily work for it that at this point comes so naturally to me as if like the mom just like the mom that it comes so naturally to be like of course I'm going to feed my baby before class like this is just class you know
1: yeah yeah yeah, that's so true. And I think, you know, that's definitely how I approach being a dog mom. <laughs> oh, and you know what's so funny? Also, I got my dog last year In he moved in with me <laughs> in January. And I was still going to school on campus. And my, my closest friend, um, not to, you know, say that she was wrong in doing this, but I remember that when I got Lucky, my dog's name was Lucky, when I got him, um, I was going to class And class would finish, and I would, like, snap of a finger, give them a hug, say goodbye, and I'd come home. And before I got him, when class would finish, or we had, like, a break in between classes, especially when we had a break in between classes, um, my friends would be like, let's go grab lunch, like, let's go have Chipotle, let's go grab a coffee. And I'd be all for it, like, I'd go with them. But then, when I got him, and he was a puppy, obviously, and, you know, he was learning to be potty trained, and he was staying here in my apartment, By himself, while I was at school, any break, any chance that I got, I also live really close to campus. I live in grad housing, which is, I, unfortunately slash fortunately, it's like a love-hate that I live at the farthest building from school, from my program building. Um, So it's about like a 15, 20 minute walk. And, um, you know, when I would have an hour break, like I would literally walk home, speed walk, get here, you know, take him out, do his potty, play with him for a little bit and then walk speed walk back to class um and so it was so funny because when I started doing that my friend she'd say things like um he'll be fine like he's a dog like he'll get used to it like he has to get used to you being away from him and um you know things like he's gonna be fine basically but I I was I'm a first-time dog mom so I would be like no like pobrecito like he has to get out and he needs me. Like, he wants me to play with him. I'm sure he does. And so, you know, I would, like, make that time. And then, funny story, she decided to get a dog herself when the pandemic hit. And when we were at home, oh, my God, her dog, you know, has, like, he's a pandemic dog. And I feel like a lot of pandemic dogs have, like, separation anxiety because they're so used to having their parents at home. And so, um, you know, now... She struggles so much to leave him alone because he cries so much and because he's not used to her being away and like he has like major separation anxiety like she'll tell me they could hear him in the parking lot like crying when they leave and I'm like you should have like given him a space you should have like you know like managed to you know be there and not be there and um I'm sure it's hard I mean obviously we're working from home where's she gonna go but (laughs) <laughs> it's just, it's so funny to me because I feel like she's so attached to the dog that even if she had to leave, like she would be mean, you know, she would be coming back <laughs> whenever she could to see her dog. Um, so yeah, it's really funny. And I think that the responsibility of having a dog in grad school is nothing to compare to having a child, but it's still a responsibility. And, you know, just like you said, having the podcast, it's a responsibility and its and we have to just learn to love it enough to give it the attention that it needs and, you know, give it the time that it needs. And yeah.
0: No, of course. And I've definitely been there. Well, when I agree with you, like a podcast, the puppy is nothing compared to like a real baby. Got to make that super, super clear. But I've definitely been in your shoes where I'm like, like, oh, I have to go record my solo episode or I have this interview episode that I have to do for like the season later on. And sometimes the very few people that I do like converse with about what I do for the podcast, they'll be like, But why are you doing that? Like, what? Like, who? Like, not who cares, but like, who cares? I'm like, I care.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I would say, like, I care. He's my
0: dog. (laughs) Exactly. All right, mi So, Jennifer, where can everybody find you if they want to connect with you? Because... I feel like everyone would really love to just continue to get to know you, ask you questions. And I feel like you sharing your handles will definitely help them like navigate themselves to you.
1: Yeah. So I will give you those to put obviously as well in notes, but it's um, academic Latina on Instagram um, and also through email. So academic Latina at Gmail and on Twitter, I'm not the most active on Twitter I try to make it an academic Twitter, but then my bunny pops up and I'm like, retweet. Um, so <laughs> on Twitter as Jen, so J-E-N-N underscore C-A-B-R. So it's like first four letters of my first name, first four letters of my last name. Um, that's how you find me on Twitter. And then buy her stickers. They're like so oh, cute yeah. and they're affordable <laughs>
0: and free shipping.
1: Yeah, they're they're linked in my bio on Instagram. So Academic Latina on Instagram they're in my bio. Um, and there's another one too. There's another sticker, hija de inmigrantes, which I love because it has the monarch butterflies. Uh, and the monarch butterflies are so pretty.
0: So there's that. <laughs> no, definitely. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And mi gente, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I know it was a longer one than usual, but I know you enjoyed it. So it's okay. All right, mi gente, <laughs> cuídense y hablamos pronto.